0: So here we are together on this last night of our seven-day retreat, and we've also begun a new year, lots of changes, and you might have noticed that things are starting to speed up a little bit. You know, I came into the meditation hall, and it was a little bit different out in the foyer than it was uh, last night before the Dharma talk. Um people sitting around reading and looking at things and you know very different atmosphere and it's not unnatural you know this is what happens as we begin to move out into the world the worldly life again not that this is not the world sometimes we have to be sure to Uh, uh, say that. It's it's not as if we've come out of the world being here on retreat. But we go back into our daily life and things move a lot faster. And so our body-mind, our psyche, starts to prepare for that. You probably noticed today probably a little bit more planning thoughts and thinking about the future and what's going to happen tomorrow and You know, just kind of a a speeding up a little bit more of the energy. And we prepare ourselves in this way so that when we go out tomorrow, we're a little bit more up to speed. There's a rhythm. There's always a rhythm in every retreat. You know, when we first come into a retreat, we are a little bit more revved up from all that's happened in our daily life. And it takes us a little time to adjust and to settle and then as we move towards the middle of a retreat, no matter whether it's a seven-day or a 30-day retreat, it seems to have a similar kind of rhythm. We move into the middle, of, more towards the middle of the retreat, and then we really start to settle. And I think a lot of people, probably most everyone, has had experiences of that deep settling, deep resting. Even if it didn't last a long time for some people, I think a lot of people touch that in themselves. And then as we move towards the end of the retreat, we feel that kind of speeding up again. And so it's not that we necessarily have lost anything or it means that we have to get back to another retreat to, you know, to get that calm again. I mean, hopefully what you have understood and are beginning to recognize is that mindfulness itself isn't dependent on the form, our formation. It doesn't depend on whether we're sitting or uh, in a very uh, still posture. Um, Mindfulness can be uh, applied to anything we're doing, any, any moment, any formation at all, any speed. We can move fast, we can be engaged in uh, uh, activity like you are when you're doing your yogi job. And it's possible to stay very present, to stay very alert. In fact, sometimes more so, you know, you're very engaged, very connected to what you're doing. And so the importance, again and again, is the mindfulness itself, is the quality of presence, the quality of wakeful attention that we're bringing to what we're doing. It doesn't matter at all what we're doing. In terms of the application of our mindfulness. So you you can begin to notice this as you uh, go through the evening and then tomorrow, begin to pack up and go out, just noticing what remains. The experiences change, the mind states and the bodily experiences change, but the mind state, the mindfulness, hmm, I wonder if we really pay attention. Is there some more constancy than we may give ourselves credit for, of that we're here, we're here, now we're attending to this, now we're attending to this, now we're attending to this. So tonight I want to explore a little bit more in depth this um, doing, the activity, the action, this action that we take. And I want to explore a little bit this where this action arises from. Because in the last couple of days, we've been pointing you back to this little bit more of a non-doing or a non-interfering in the experience that is arising. Kind of resting a little bit more so that you aren't as... um, Getting as uh, uh, controlling as much and uh, expecting as much and kind of manipulating your experience as much, but a little bit more of this resting back and allowing the uh, conditions of mind and body to appear and disappear. As Gil talked about this morning and last night, and not only talked about, but really pointed us to that revelation of how conditions just can appear do do appear and disappear and appear and disappear and so when we talk about conditions we're talking about all that's happening in the situation in our activity and it's not only outside conditions but also the inside the internal conditions the conditions of our mind and our feelings and our body and our moods those conditions Appearing and disappearing, arising and passing. So, this whole uh, nature that we find ourselves in, in, internally and externally, arising and passing, arising and passing. So, then it brings up the question what, then who's doing this? You know? You know, it seems like I am the one who's directing my life. You know, I'm the one that's taking responsibility for things, or I need to. I mean, if I just kind of rest back and, you know, allow things to appear and disappear, is anything going to get done? You know, I think the government's a little concerned about this, too. You know, they don't really want people to rest because of the, what it would, might do to the economy. But you know, we have this kind of concern, you know well what, well, what would happen to all the things that I need to do, all of my responsibilities and so so, I think that it might be helpful a little bit to explore maybe where some of the confusion arises for us around that, where 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 this this sense of I have to do something, I have to get, you know, get engaged in my life. I have all these things that I have to attend to. And then we could feel stress and burdened and tight and frustrated when, you know, things don't go the way we want them to go. And, you know, we get headaches and we get ill and, you know, on and on and on. Is this the way it has to be? And I really think that that's an important question for us in our, particularly, you know, in our 21st century culture in the Bay Area, California, and in the West, the Western countries, everything's speeding up. Is this the way it has to be? Is there another way to live? And I think it's a very useful question for all of us to ask ourselves, and it's a Huge question that I'm asking myself, and really making very, very different choices these days about that because I don't want to live with this stress and with a sense of burden and this kind uh, of this inner driver. You know, we can have different names for what that, uh, whatever it is inside of us that pushes us, that drives us. You know, some people call it the driver or the Pusher or the taskmaster, you know, that, that internal agency that we think has to be there to get anything done. Another way this is talked about in spiritual traditions is called the doer, you know, the way the self, sense of our self, manifests around a sense of doing. That we have to do so much to be somebody, you know, to have some kind of identity, to have, have some sense of who we are. You know, who we are is dependent on what we do. You know, like the first thing when you meet somebody at a party, what do you say? What do you do? What do you do? You know, sometimes I have to kind of try to catch myself so that I don't, you know, ask that question as the first question because it's such a habit. And so it's like, what if we just kind of don't go there so much in terms of the way we define ourselves or the way we create an identity about ourselves? So this, this, this um, agency, this taskmaster, this driver, this pusher, we call the ego. And this is a manifestation of ego, ego-self, you know, that is identified with certain ideas in the sense of, Standards of what has to be accomplished and what has to be done, and this is all, you know, messages we've been getting since we were very young in our in our culture. It's even stronger now with young children. Just got an email from my niece who has a a, th- a, f- a three year old and a, a five year old, and she just said that she was going to change the preschools that my uh, my three year old niece was in because the five year old is having a little trouble at school. She doesn't feel like she can keep up. So she went to that preschool, and it didn 't prepare her well enough for for the work in in kindergarten. so she 's going to find another preschool that's going to prepare this three three year old for the studies that she 's going to have to have when she 's in kindergarten um, this is This is what 's you know happening now, and it starts at such an early age and so of course, a lot of us have this kind of conditioning. To identify ourselves around the sense of doing what we need to do, and as sometimes teachers point out, you know, it's as if we are human doings rather than human beings. Spiritual spiritual life really reflects back to us, shows us how we can be human beings. What does it mean to be? To be, and when we come on retreat, we have a we we can potentially have a taste of this, you know, this uh, sense of really being natural, being simple, being, being in a way that feels more authentic. It feels more real. We know it. It's not like somebody's saying, "Yeah, now you're being more." Real, you know, now you're now you're being a human being. It's like we know it. There's a way we recognize that in ourselves. It feels right. We feel aligned with something. We feel aligned with the with the with the, uh, the nature in some way. Like we're more in sync. We're more in the flow with the way things are. This is being, being. We love that. Something wakes up in us. When we, when we connect with that more. So when we leave here, what is it? What can help us, what can support us to stay in tune with that more sense of being? Because it's so easy to get pulled back into the old habitual ways of being, the old habitual patterns. Particularly you go home, and you go back into a familiar environment with somewhat familiar people. You know, there may be people who live in your house or people you live with. You go back. And so, so the environment almost encourages the familiarity. And so you, it's almost like the, you're, we, we just kind of fall back into some of those same ways of being because everything's set up for it. You know, it's like the karmic momentum of our life is still going on. We, you know, we've come here to retreat, but we go back, and it's kind of all there for us. And so, it's like there's a current. There's a current that we enter back into that we can just get pulled right back into. And then it's almost it it almost can have a feeling of a vortex where we almost can't feel like we can get out. It's so strong and this is where our mindfulness is so important this is this is where our, our pra- this is where the practice comes in because because mindfulness practice is about transformation it's about transforming the ego habit it's about transforming that so we're not caught we're not stuck we're not controlled by those habits those habits of mind And so by bringing our mindfulness to ourselves when we go back home, we can pay attention to the ways that we feel pulled, we feel driven, we feel pushed, we feel caught. And within a moment of mindfulness, there is also the possibility for choice to do something different. If we are not aware if we're not mindful then we have no choice. And that's a very important point actually. And the more that I really understand that it, it, it just feels so profound that if I'm just caught in on automatic in the habit, in the old habit, there is no choice. There's no possibility for transformation. There's no possibility to do anything differently. We literally are are in, on automatic, and all, like, almost like being in a trance. We call that sometimes in spiritual language. It's like being we go back into the trance, and there doesn't seem to be any way to change that. And yet, we can with mindfulness, with wakefulness, with awareness, by paying attention moment to moment to moment it really is that kind of quality of of bringing that light of awareness to ourselves when we're, whatever we're doing wherever we are to see what's happening how am i getting caught how am i getting pulled what's happening internally how is that tension that that tightness that reactivity that stress how is it actually forming What's actually happening that that's occurring in myself? And as as we pay attention, as we actually become curious, as we become interested in it, we may be able to get some insight and understanding that we then can make different choices. We can decide to do some different things. And it may not be that we can do that right away, that we can change something right away. It may take some time. We have to set some things in motion, So that in time, those conditions fall apart and they're not operating anymore. Sometimes we get so impatient, you know, well, I want it to change now. You know, I don't want to be in this karmic uh, uh, trap. I want to be out of it. And then, of course, what's that? Just more of the same thing. You know, it's more demanding and controlling and reacting and getting frustrated Although, depending on, you know, where we're coming from, it may be just enough of a kind of like, I'm not going to do it anymore, and it may have enough strength that we can really make a change in our life. It may not necessarily be reactivity. It may actually be coming from a place of deep wisdom where we know that something has to change and we cannot go on the way we're going on. And that's wisdom. You know, there's connection with a deeper source there. So perhaps we need to really discriminate as well where that kind of that, that sense of urgency or that drive is coming from because that's the subtlety in the practice. Sometimes it can be coming out of more of the same old habit of wanting what I want and I want it now and I'm you know, going to do everything I can to make it happen, but it's just the same old driver and pusher and ego position. Or it might be something deeper. This place where we kind of just get fed up. And sometimes that has to happen in our practice, where we just get so fed up that we're not going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I think I have a... um, um, One of... uh, uh, I don't know where is this from, but it's a definition of insanity... Maybe you've heard that insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. (laughs) I think that's a lot of what we do. You know, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again and nothing changes and we don't understand why. Sometimes we just have to get so fed up. And I've seen this in myself and I've seen this in other people where that, that just that energy of that kind of anger in a way, but this is like a wholesome anger, it just kind of shatters the old and we can just move into something that's new for ourselves so we can feel that there's a kind of ego this sense of this is how we talk about it in the spiritual language, the sense of our self this identity, self-identity as the doer as the one that has to get things done and we can start to really feel that, like what's that like? How does that feel in our body? So good to have the practice of being able to feel in the body, not just staying caught up at the mental level, at our thoughts, but to actually feel in the body how, these, uh, how this dukkha, how this uh, um, tension is driving us. And as we do that, we start to feel more and more the dukkha of it, the pain of it. You know, this isn't the way I want to live. And we can start making other choices. So we're having insight. We start to have insight into this sense of self. This sense of self and this way that this identity happens around the sense of self. And as we start to have some more understanding, we can begin to let go. And something opens up. We're starting to be, we can start to be more in tune with a deeper part of ourselves. Something that feels a little bit more true, a little bit more real, more authentic. And then that starts to be expressed more and more in the world. Something that feels much more aligned with who we truly are as we start to break up the old break up some of those old habits. So much of this driving comes from this sense of this also, this ego habit of wanting. You know, the wanting, I want what I want. I want what I want. And this, this sense of ourself, you know, the way it's, it's formed has this idea that it can actually get what it wants. You know, of course, this is an a idea that's validated in our culture as well. You know, you just go for it and you can get it. You can get whatever, get whatever you want. And so it reinforces this sense of control in our life, this I want what I want. But as we start to pay attention a little bit more, we actually, and if we're honest with ourselves, we actually don't always get what we want. (laughs) There's actually a great deal of disappointment. There's a great deal of letdown that the sense of ourself has to continually deal with which we often experience as the frustration, as the you know, disappointment, as anger, as rage. Sometimes we don't get what we want. This is one of my favorite um, cartoons from Calvin and Hobbes. And you know Calvin. He's just so delightful. And you won't be able to see the pictures, but maybe you'll get the sense of it. Calvin is um, has a sled behind him, and he's looking down on the ground, and it's there's... It's grass, there's no snow. So he's looking down at the ground, and he's just like, "What is going on?" So he says, um, change my glasses. Here. "If I was in charge, we'd never see grass between October and May." And he's kind of looking up at the sky, you know you know to who. And then he looks up and he yells, "On three, ready. One, two, three, Snow!" And in the next picture, he's just looking very glum, like nothing's happened. And he looks up again, he says, I said, snow, come on. And then snow, and he's going in a temper, temper, and tenter, temper, and he's running around, and nothing's happening, it's not snowing. And then he looks up again, and he says, okay then, don't snow. See what I care, I like this weather, let's have it forever. What's that little bargaining there? And then he gets down on his knees and he says, please, snow, please, just a foot. (laughs) Okay, eight inches. That's all. Come on, six inches. Oh, how about just six? And then he goes, I'm waiting. (laughs) And then, again, round in the circle, another temper tantrum, nothing's happening, no snow. And then the next frame, he's totally exhausted. Knopf can't do anything, you know, he can't get what he wants. And the next one, he looks up and he says, do you want me to become an atheist? (laughs) We just keep trying, you know? Bargaining, bargaining, get what we want. But this is what our spiritual practice our, our meditation practice really shows us is this clinging you know clinging on and the pain of that you know on retreat we see that so clearly that's why we call it the path of letting go letting go of the clinging what happens when we let go of the clinging It's not like we can't do anything, you know, it's not like we have to completely give up. And sometimes we think that that's what these teachings are pointing to, you know, this kind of resting back, letting go, opening up, and then it can just feel like we just have to give it all over and then any, it's sort of random, it's all just sort of random that happens but what we see and we've been talking a little about this is that in every moment there is the the arising of intention mm-hmm. this factor of intention where there is something that propels us into the next moment and we can see this we can have right now I'm having the intention to speak to you, you no know, or you might be having the intention to leave the room or you know i mean this you know just some intention arises And so the intention directs us to a action, talking or acting in in the body in some way, some kind of action, and then some kind of result, some kind of consequence of that. So the sequence is this intention, action, and result. Intention, action, and result. One of the wonderful teachings that I received early on in my practice was that the pro- one of the problems is is that we think that we can, we have influence over that whole sequence. You know, that if I intend something in the right direction and you know, have the right action, that I'll get the result. That's what we think. You know, if I um, study hard and graduate with good marks, I'll go out and I'll get a good job and I'll make uh, $200,000 a year and I'll be set for life. You know, and that everything will just flow along in the way that I imagine it. But what we learn here is that actually we the intention is important to pay at- attention to the intention and how we're directing our intentions. But actually the other side of that coin intention is on one side of the coin but on the other side of the coin is letting go of the result. Because we don't have any control over what's going to happen. We have the in, we, can, we, can, we have our intentions we can direct our actions but then we need to let go. We don't know what's going to happen. I was very touched by something I saw I think it was last year when the uh, Katrina happened in December, Um, watching the news, watching the stories that were uh, on TV about that. And there was an interview with one man, you know, we all know that the whole, you know, place was a mess. And there was an interview with one man who was a fairly successful businessman who had um, a very good life there, had things that he wanted and his life in order. And he was, he lost everything, and he was pretty destitute, and he needed to, um, he had things in a shopping cart, and he was just, he didn't have a home or anything, so he was kind of walking around the streets with a few things that he had. And, And what he had said to the interviewer was, most of my life, when I saw people on the streets, pushing shopping carts. I had such strong judgments of them and really knew that I was so much better than them. And now I'm walking the streets pushing a shopping cart. I'm destitute, just like them. And he was so humble. He had really recognized that he had seen wrongly he had been confused he had wrong view and that he was propping himself up for so much of his life and didn't see clearly that we were really all the same at our core at our heart our being and it was so powerful you know this was on na- national television you know this man you know just so the recognition That he, in this now, he was the same. And it really opened his mind. It opened his heart. He knew he had no control. He had no control. And so sometimes it isn't until something very unfortunate happens that we wake up to the fact that we actually don't have much control. We like to believe it. We like to imagine it. It's a fantasy. It's a trance. You know, we want to live in that. It keeps us comfortable. keeps us secure in some way that we can. But when we come here and people have these experiences too where, you know, things start to fall apart and it's scary. We feel that vulnerability of like, I thought that I was setting things in motion, and now I see that maybe I'm not, that something else is actually going on, and it, I'm scared. I, I feel this. I feel really shaky. I feel really vulnerable. I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do. And as I sit with people sometimes, and we just allow this to happen, then the, it's so quickly the clinging can come up again, but I can do this. Or, it was like this, that worked, I can go back to that. And then just to rest back in to the vulnerability, to that fragility of maybe we don't. And sometimes we can even look more deeply and question whether these intentions actually belong to us either. I remember one time I was doing my walking meditation and I was really exploring this question of choice because it was so interesting to me. It's like, it seems like we have choice. It seems like I can direct things in my life. It seems like I can decide to do this and not do that. But when I really look, it doesn't seem like I have much choice at all. It kind of seems like it's just all happening. You know, things are... And te- appearing and disappearing in my thoughts and my feelings and emotions and I just seem to wind up here, wind up there. It's like, am I really? How much choice do I really have about this? So I was doing my walking meditation and I wanted to see what would happen if I just walked without the sense of me doing it, of me walking. Like I'm the one who's doing my walking meditation and just let the walking happen. So walking, walking, walking. And I have my path. And I know where my path is and get to the end of my path. Like, okay, this is somehow this is defined as the end of my path. My body is slowing down and I'm starting to stop. Okay, this is the end of my path. I'm not doing, not doing, just okay, stopping. Just watching, watching. And then turning, <laughs> turning, turning, and then taking a step and just watching this intention arising and falling and walking happening and just being very involved. And am I doing this? Or am I not doing this? You know, this kind of really holding that question. And this kind of investigation, this kind of looking, can really make us question more deeply, what is going on here? How much is it about me at all? Am I doing this? This is one of my favorite quatrains from Rumi, which comes to me often. Starts like this. Do you think I know what I'm doing? I'm just that line itself. <laughs> Do you think I know what I'm doing? That, for one breath or one half breath, I belong to myself, as much as a pen knows what it 's writing or the ball can guess where it 's going next. Do you think I know what i 'm doing it 's very interesting you know i in giving this talk tonight i um, I usually have my talks much more prepared, but i just in a place now where I don't want to prepare my talk so much and it's this sense of wanting to just see where the words go next. Now, I Do you think I know what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> do you think any of us know what we're doing? You, I'm sure you're very impressed by us up here. But <laughs> you know, we're just... It's happening. And there's something that happens by sitting in that, what we call sometimes the mystery. The mystery of the not knowing. Not knowing what's going to happen next. And there's something that feels kind of very alive about that, very fresh about that. Because it's not from the mind this is not moving from mind and what i mean by that when we talk about mind we talk about past and future you know the past it's it's old the past is it's it's already happened so how can it be fresh the past is is gone and yet we often reach back into the past and bring something from the past into the future very conscious into the present very consciously because it gives us a little bit more sense of security we know it it's more familiar it's it's we can we 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 know what we're doing then, know where we're going. We have more sense of uh, you know going from A to B. But when we let go of that rope, when we let go of that lifeline, where are we? Where am I? Well, just here. But it's not like nothing happens then, you know? It's not like nothing happens next. There's, there's, there always seems to be the next, you know, and yet we, you know, until we take our last breath, but then is there, we don't know, is there maybe a next? The scripture says there's a next. But there seems to be a next. Something, more conditions, conditions arising and passing, arising and passing, more conditions coming together and falling apart, coming together and falling apart. And that's me. Conditions coming together and falling apart. Mind, body, thoughts, feelings, sensations. <coughs> physical components. Sight, sounds, taste, smells, touch. Coming together, falling apart. Coming together, falling apart. Maybe it reconfigures in a very similar way and that's the problem because when we think there's more continuity then in the sense of self because there does seem to be some order it's not completely random. Yet when we look and we see, we've seen it here, many people have described it of, yes, I see it, just thoughts arising and dissolving, feelings coming together and falling apart, not remaining. This gives us a revelation into some deep truth about the way things are and about the possibility of how we can live, live our life, live our life with less knowing of what's going to happen or thinking we know what's going to happen, being so attached to the results of what's going to happen. Because truly we don't know, but yet it gives us a sense of some security, comfort to the, to the sense of self, who we take ourselves to be. But to let, begin to let go of that, we let go of our sense of identity, our sense of self, and it's scary. We feel vulnerable there with the not knowing. In talking about this kind of coming together and falling apart, coming together and falling apart, before the retreat, I have a a friend who's actually on the retreat who uh, is visiting America for the first time, and we went out to the ocean, Point Reyes, and she hadn't seen the Pacific Ocean. And I have a favorite spot that I like to go to, Abbott's Lagoon, out on Point Reyes, just about a half hour from here go for a walk through the meadows and then through the sand dunes and then into the out to the to the to the beach it's about a 45 minute walk so beautiful and i love to sit there and watch the waves just come in and go out and come in and go out and it's so such a deep reflection for me of life of the conditions coming together and falling apart coming together and falling apart that just the the tide, like the the, the the breath of life, just like the waves on the ocean, and so we, and I really feel this in my body as i I sense the waves hitting the shore, breaking up, and then going back out. This really brings me right into that place of kind of the empty nature, the in, in the transient nature of all things, so I was sitting there with her, and we we're, we're sitting. We're back from the beach, and I've sat there many times. And I um, was contemplating. We were sitting there for about a half hour and drinking our tea, and I was I was contemplating on how isn't it just the laws of nature that the wave is just hit a certain part of the shore and then go back? How perfect, you know, that they don't they're not random. You know, why are people laughing? Do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> and it was just really this beautiful kind of order to life. The pelicans are flying by. She hadn't seen pelicans, and I had my, my relatively new camera, and I brought it out because I wanted to get pictures of the pelicans for her. And I just set it down for a moment. Just everything was so serene. <laughs> See, they do know. They know. And then all of a sudden, we're just sitting there, and this big wave just starts coming at us. And I picked up my pack and ran, and she ran but I forgot about my camera, and it didn't wash out to shore, but when I came, it just came up from a minute, we ran, we got out of the out of the way, and then um, I wouldn't look at my camera, and of course salt water and sand and all that, you know, did pretty much the end of the camera, but it was like life again, you know, not just the perfect, you know, the, the, how I imagine the perfect order, you know, the waves just hitting at a certain place on the shore and, you know, everything's all safe and secure. And, and it was just like this big, like tsunami wave. I mean, it wasn't really like that, but in my imagination, it's like that, you know, I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden this wave is about this high right in front of me, you know, and I'm Running and we have rogue waves around here. I found out. I didn't know that beforehand. <laughs> but we have we have rogue waves. You know, waves that just come out of nowhere and then just can take people out to sea. Actually. And so, on reflection, I was grateful that it was only my camera. <laughs> you know, that it wasn't my friend who had been visiting from from England. You know, um, and me going out to show out to the, the shore. Um, But it's just like that. It's just like that. We don't know. We don't know. Any moment. But the more that we are alert, the more that we're here, the more that we're present, there's a sense of readiness. There's a sense of being able to respond. There's a sense of being able to engage with what's needed. If I, you know, just for an example, had I been, you know, a little loopy, you know, on some alcohol or something, maybe, you know, my responses wouldn't have been as quick. You know, just using that as an example, just how the mind can get, a, you know, a little bit diluted or, you know, just kind of not fully there, just using this example. So this quality of aliveness, being here, being ready, being present, being engaged so that we can respond. We, we don't have to be thinking about it. We don't have to remember how we responded last time and it worked then. Maybe I could respond like that this time. We just respond because that's the appropriate response. There was a person who asked um, an enlightened master. It said, What's a, what would be a, a sign of an enlightened being? And this master said, Unappropriate response. Just that, because there isn't the being lost in the past and future. It's just here. Mind, not lost in the mind. It's just here. Responding to life, engaged with life through the senses. Eyes and ears and tongue and nose and skin. Alive, in contact with. Engaged. Responding. that's what begins to happen. So we, we don't have to configure into this kind of self-identified self that has this whole burden of the past, this whole burden of responsibility in the sense of doing what I have to do and then figure out how I'm going to do it and set the whole thing in motion in the future. It's more like, what needs to happen now? What needs to happen now? What needs to happen now? There's more of that sense of being in touch with a different kind of intelligence, not just the intelligence of the brain that is mostly about past memory, but a kind of intelligence that is nature itself, the intelligence that lives in all things that is connected to all things, that is not separate from all things, the intelligence that can respond because it is already in sync, it is already aligned, it is already part of, it is already in flow. It's already in the flow. We, I, am already in the flow. And the more that I can be, have access to that, knowing to that wisdom, then I can engage in what's needed, when it's needed. I'm talking about a kind of an aspiration. I'm not talking about a way that we can necessarily be right now because we have set a lot of conditions in motion, our karmic conditions in motion. So there are a lot of things that have to be attended to. There's a lot of things that we have to work with in our life, to deal with in our life, to unravel in our life. And hopefully we are bringing our wisdom to that process. We're bringing our compassion to that process. We're bringing the qualities of our being, our wisdom qualities to the process as much as we possibly can. And that's what we wake up to here on our retreats, on our, in our practice. We wake up to those qualities of our being the qualities we've been talking about here, the qualities that Adrienne spoke of that we're cultivating, the qualities of the heart, the qualities of the, of the, of the, of the belly, the, the strength and the power, the qualities of the mind, the, the alertness and the ardency. And we bring more and more and more, we bring this to our life circumstances. And the last thing I want to mention in the context of all of this is what's called the bodhisattva attitude. Because as we begin to let go of our own self-preoccupations and our self-interests and our way that we kind of narrowly define our life in terms of our own wants and needs... And the sense of self begins to loosen up and we become more connected with the world around us, with life around us, with beings around us. We start to feel more of a, what's called a selfless desire that arises out of love and compassion for all beings to be free of their pain and their suffering. When we call this the bodhisattva attitude, bodhisattva meaning, uh, in one translation, a courageous being, bodhisattva, bodhi awake, Uh, this awake being, this courageous being, we become in contact with that quality, those essential qualities, that, that nature that we are, that moves out of a selfless wish for all beings to be happy, for all beings to be relieved of their pain. And so our actions begin to arise more from that place of selflessness, a selfless connection with all beings around us. This compassion, the, the, the expression of the compassionate heart comes through, shines through, as that more contracted sense of self loosens up, begins to dissolve. This becomes important. And many people, many of us, we've taken the bodhisattva vows, which is really to vow to relieve, to help to relieve the suffering of all beings as a way of being, as a service, as as a way to act in the world, because it doesn't seem like There's anything else to do. There's no other choice. The decision becomes choiceless. It's not me making the choice. There's no other choice. It's all that can be done. Nothing else to do. And so the heart begins to move in this way out of love and compassion for all beings. Let's sit together for a minute or two. May all beings be free of suffering.